0: Excellent. Okay. All right. Now I think we should be on completely for everybody. Welcome back, everybody. This is session 52 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I'm Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and tonight, tonight, we may get to the end of Chapter 9. I know. I know. We'll see. We might be able to do it. Um, so... Uh, Before we start, one quick announcement. Not exactly an announcement really so much as it is just sort of a celebration. Because something has... Happened this past week that I've been waiting for, uh, uh, for a while. We've been working on for a while behind the scenes. Thanks to uh, MythGuard Kin member Tug McGill, uh, uh, who has been working on this so hard with us uh, at Signum and MythGuard. We have a new web page for Signum, or sorry, for uh, MythGuard.org. Our MythGuard web page was so out of date, uh, and it's been kind of limping along. For a while, uh, but uh, so we we have our brand new. Uh, actually useful Mythgard webpage, which is so cool. So you can see here the links to all of our major MythGuard programs, Mythgard Academy, the new Mythgard Movie Club, uh, the Sil- uh, Silmarillion Film Project. For those of you who are on Twitter and can't see my screen, uh, this is just Mythgard.org. You can check it out. If you look up at the top, you can see not only get links to Signum University, all the different places you get uh, links to all of our upcoming moots, you've got uh, links to all of our, uh, our channels, Twitch channel, YouTube, and iTunes U different podcast feeds to listen to, the places where you can go to discuss stuff. We've got all of our, you know, just right up here on our top tab now. You can go right down to the War of the Ring class to get all your information on the War of the Ring, the new Movie Club series, which has been so much fun, our Lotro page, and all the film stuff as well. It's all here! So, oh man, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just super excited about our new webpage, so I just wanted to share with you that this has happened, and I'm I'm pretty excited so that now I can give web instructions that are so much simpler. Here we are. Look at that in a nifty London moot ad and our Wrinkle in Time movie discussion, which is coming up. So it's going to be so much easier to stay on top of everything that's happening uh, at MythGuard. So just wanted to share that with you. MythGuard.org, newly revamped site, Beautiful stuff. So uh, I wanted to thank uh, thank Curtis, thank Tug McGill uh, so much for all of his work on this, and uh, and onwards and upwards as we continue. So anyway, isn't that cool? That's kind of fun, right? All right. So tonight we are going to, uh, uh, as I say, finish chapter nine. Now, uh, one thing I wanted to do uh, uh, at the beginning, uh, a sort of. Uh, shout! Oh, yeah, tonight's class is called Damage Control, as, of course, uh, you know, if you ever find yourself uh, suddenly invisible on the floor of a pub, the first thing you should do, right, is crawl under the table until you're overhanging out with, like, the seediest... Person in the room, right if you f- find crawl your way towards the least reputable person you can find uh, and then be like, "Oh, I was just hanging over hanging out with this sketchy dude that everybody's afraid of right I guess maybe that might increase your street cred, but I'm not sure it's really the way to keep yourself uh, on a low profile, but of course, as we've seen, Frodo not really exceptionally talented at that element of things yet so anyhow, but so tonight we're going to look at frodo's damage control. And what uh, and what goes on with that. I'm going to be really interested, especially in looking at his interaction with Strider, as of course, as we move into Chapter 10, which I am so very confident that we're going to be doing next week, um, of course we're going to be looking at his interactions with Strider, and I'm really looking forward to looking at that conversation slowly, so much in that conversation with Strider, uh, which takes up, of course, so much of Chapter 10, uh, that it's it's sort of really easy to skip over. I can't wait to be able to give Chapter 10 the Exploring the Lord of the Rings treatment. But anyway, uh, before we do that, one uh, one quick shout-out, as I said. So this is the second week in a row I'm uh, doing a question, a sort of a, a throwback question uh, from a new listener Vranda. I want to give Vranda a shout-out because, uh, I don't know if this person is masculine or feminine, but uh, but Vranda had posted on the discussion boards that, that uh, they did 44 episodes in the last two weeks trying to catch up with us because they've joined late. That is serious dedication right there Uh, so shout out to you and I'll happily uh, address your question plus I didn't think this was one that I totally uh, answered actually at the time it came up but I don't think I didn't I don't remember totally answering it so I thought I'd give it one other crack um So, Vranda says, I have one issue that I can't seem to wrap my mind around concerning Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites. If the Downs are part of his land, as he claims when escorting the Hobbits safely out of it after their rescue and he warned the Hobbits about the Barrows upon their departure from his home, it would seem obvious that he knew about the Whites and their potential for trouble. As Tom is undoubtedly good, and if the Barrows are within his realm of influence, then what reason could he possibly have for allowing the Whites to persist? He's obviously not opposed to banishing them, as he did exactly that during the Hobbits' rescue. So, this is a Great question, and I know this is exactly a kind of question, of course. And, and as uh, Fourth Dauntless uh, was immediately pointing out in response to this on the discussion board, and thanks Fourth Dauntless for bringing this up. Of course, it's not just the Barrowites, right? You've got you know you've got Old Man Willow who like lives on Tom's block. I mean, he's right near his house, right? So, um, uh, so yeah, clearly there's some seriously bad stuff. Remember, even Treebeard considers what goes on in the Old Forest shady right? Though, of course, you'll notice that Treebeard points out uh, that uh, there are some there are some, you know, he says there are some very black patches, right? Uh, In the old forest. But it's not, notice the, the sort of the The shady thing, right? I said the forest is shady. But anyway, the shady bits in the forest, right, in more than one sense. But anyhow, um, you know, but remember, Treebeard is immediately like, but nothing like as bad as what you can find in my forest, right? And that by itself bears thinking on for a minute, right? Um, because I think that that actually kind of points, on the one hand, we can see that it's not just us, right? There's not really a question of like, oh, I don't know, maybe Old Man Willow isn't actually so bad, right? Maybe he has good side too, and you know, the hobbits and he just kind of, they, they got off to a bad start, but maybe he's not such a, maybe he's not such a bad fellow after all. Um, no. <laughs> no, even Treebeard acknowledges that he's uh, that he's bad. Tom Bombadil says that he's bad. Everybody agrees. Old Man Willow is bad, and the Barrow Whites are certainly bad. But that's not the point, right? Again, it, even as. Looking forward to what Treebeard is going to say helps to sort of affirm that no, there really are, there really is darkness there, uh, in the old forest. It also helps to—I don't know if it necessarily points us to an answer, um, but it does really point us to something, right? Um, and here's what I think it points us to. I would say, Randa, that for me, the, the 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 critical part of this entire thing comes in this sentence right here. As Tom is undoubtedly good. Right? That's, that's the rub. Now, I'm not questioning that. Is Tom good? Absolutely yes, Tom is good. I'm not trying to get all relativistic here. Again, I, I don't think that's the answer. One temptation is to be like, well, maybe Tom isn't what everybody would call good, or maybe Old Man Willow isn't what everybody would call evil. Nah. Tom is good. Old Man Willow is evil. No question. The, the problem is what does that mean? Right? What does it mean? And specifically, I'm not talking about the evil, I'm talking about the good. What does it mean to be good? Right? Because the assumption, Vranda, that seems to me to be underlying your question, the questions you're posing in that sentence there, as Tom is good and the barrows are within his realm of influence, what reason could he possibly have for allowing the whites to persist? Right? Um The the assumption underlying that question is someone who is good. If there is evil within their power, right? They could, they have the ability, right? They have the, they have the, the, the the power to to cleanse that evil, right? And they choose not to. If they choose, if they are good and they are choosing not to, it can only be because they have a really compelling reason not to do that, right? But I'm not sure that that's true. At least not in the terms that we see in the book. Um, We often sort of assume. Right? That good, that goodness, has to be activist, right? It's not quite the right word, but I think you see what I mean, right? That again, like, that part of what it means to be good means to be fighting against evil, right? If you see evil, you have to resist it, not just resist it in the sense of, like, not let it corrupt you, right? That's one important kind of resistance, which I think is pretty important but that you don't but that you, you, you should resist it in the sense of like going out and you know taking care of it right but that's not so all I can say is Tom Bombadil and Treebeard both provide us with some interesting evidence that Tolkien's world does not make that assumption right we have you know so and, and first of all let me acknowledge this seems like a non-answer to the question right um, this seems like a long and, and really complicated way of me saying I don't know which it kind of is but, uh, but, it's, but it's not just that and it's certainly not me avoiding the question what I'm saying is rather than saying we have to find an explanation for this fact um in other words, or to, to say that another way, we have to find a way to fit Tom's Tom Bombadil's non-interventionalist policy. I like that word, Tony. Um, Tom's non-interventionalist policy into the, our concept of goodness, right? If, if, if Tom is good in the way that we understand goodness to be, then there has to be a reason, right? We have to make that fit in some way instead of doing that. What I think we need to do is to kind of back up a second and say, "Hang on a second. Let me not, uh, let me try not to project my own definitions and try to understand goodness as this text is describing it, right? And instead, to take Tom's non-interventionalist policy as a f- sort of a building block fact in, in order to contribute uh, towards our, um, um uh." Towards our, our understanding, towards building our vocabulary from within the book. Like, what does it mean to be good? According to the word Not according to us, right? Not according to something that we're bringing from outside, but from within the book itself. And we do have two clear examples. Think back to Treebeard's response again. And here I am saying thinking back to something we haven't talked about yet. But you, uh, you will probably remember Treebeard saying, uh, when the hobbits ask him, uh, excuse me, what side are you on? Right? Uh, and he says, sides? I don't know anything about sides, right? I'm not on anybody's side because no one is entirely on my side, right? Um. Here's one of the important things that we can see there. Mary and Pippin are thinking about this in a... Uh, I don't want to call their, their view oversimplistic exactly but they are caught up in what they're doing, right? They're part of the movement. Right? Sauron is out there and he's attacking and they're part of the resistance. Right? And they're an active part of the resistance and they're, they're like, it's us and them. Right? They have a very us and them mentality. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's not wrong to feel us and them-ish about, about Mordor as Mordor is attacking. Right? Uh, I'm not I'm not uh, uh, suggesting that we need to disapprove of Merry and Pippin's viewpoint. But what we do get is an additional viewpoint. Right? Uh, Treebeard and Tom Bombadil, both as a reminder that that's not the only way to look at things. Right? Treebeard saying, hey, I'm over here, right? And you know what? It's not as simple as the good guys and the bad guys. I've complained about this a lot, of course, but one of the things that people always complain about, about Tolkien, is that it's all very simplistic, and everything is black and white, and everybody's really good or really evil, Um, and the thing that annoys me about that observation is the fact that, actually, Tolkien's work does a lot to attack that very idea. I mean, so much! Uh, of what he works on in thinking about good and evil is exactly to challenge the kind of uh, oversimplified moral uh, sort of moral system that other people are claiming that he's uh, that he's forwarding, and and just most most of the people who say that haven't even read the books um, at all, uh, and a uh, few of them have read them very carefully. Um, but anyway, that's exactly the so Treebeard is saying. Hey, look, you can say good guys and bad guys, right? But But let's ask yourself this. The Rohirrim, right? Whose side are they on? Are they the good guys? Of course they're the good guys. They're great. Who doesn't love the Rohirrim? Awkward question, right? What about the Ents? Are they on the side of the Ents? No, not really, right? Uh, You know, I mean, but they both are against the Orcs, and that's good, right? They have that in common, but Treebeard's right, through here are on the side. right? They haven't gotten to the place where they are in direct conflict with Fangorn yet, but could it happen? Would it happen? Yeah. What about uh, the Wozes, right? Uh, Leave wild men alone and do not hunt them like beasts anymore, says Hanburi Han. How uncomfortable is that? What about the Dunlendings, right? It's clear that not everybody would view when we know for a fact not everybody views the Rohirrim as the bad, as the good guys, right? It's not that simple. It's not as simple as the good and the and the bad, right? It's not black and white. And that's one of the things that Treebeard reminds us of, right? That there is much more to this world than just are you on the side of the good guys or on the side of the bad guys? And sometimes we can very understandably, because it's easy to get swept up. You know, that it is the main motion of the story, right? Is that the good guys against the bad guys, right? Um, the, the you know, the, there is there is the enemy, and there are those who are who are resisting the enemy, and it's easy to kind of take that as like this is. This is the code, right? This is how things work. But Tolkien does offer some reminders that, again, it's not that simple. Or, again, to think about it as he... Uh, to sort of project this even into the real world terms uh, in thinking... I always remember that letter that he wrote to uh, Christopher when Christopher was in the Air Force uh, in, um, uh, in World War Two. You know, when he was saying, uh, you know, unfortunately, in this war, there are orcs on both sides, right? And, you know, the fact is... That's still kind of true, even in the Lord of the Rings itself, right? Uh, It's not a matter of all of the good guys and all of the bad guys. And Hrothgar, that's a really good thing uh, to remind us of, Um, saying that uh, the longest-lived characters, Tom Bombadil and Treebeard, take a longer view on the existence of evil. Yes, they just have a totally different way of looking at things. It doesn't mean that they are less aware of the evilness of things. Right. It's not that they're more relativistic than, you know, the other hastier folk. Right. But they take they do take a different view on it. Both of them, neither one of them is as swift to the kind of interventionalism. Right. That we Tend to want to see that we tend to even equate with goodness, like define as goodness. Obviously, if you're good, you're not going to let that go on, are you? Right? You're going to take a stand against that kind of evil. And again, I'm not criticizing that, but but there's more there's more to it, right? There's more. It's it's not quite that simple. And one of the things, actually, fourth Dauntless, I think you mentioned this in your response to Veranda on the um, uh, on the question board. Um The Barrow Whites, what harm are they doing now, right? It's not a it's not a matter of like Tom sitting back and allowing them to like, you know, rampage and destroy whole villages or something like that. Um yeah, the barrow downs are, are within his uh, his range, but Bree Town isn't, right? Um the Barrow Whites, yeah, like people who wander into the barrows may come to grief, as the Hobbits nearly do, right? Or they come to brief Grief, I suppose, uh, but um, but anyway, that they, they, like Tom's not in the business of making sure nobody ever gets hurt ever for any reason, even if they, on their own choice, go into the Barrow Downs possibly for questionable reasons uh, and end up coming to grief. He's not in the business of preventing folks doing that kind of thing, and moreover, I'm not sure that Tom Bombadil, and this is another thing, Hrothgar, that I think of in connection with your comment about the long-livedness of these two characters, Treebeard and Tom Bombadil, um, both of whom have this sort of, let's not be hasty about the whole sides question thing, right? At the end of the day, the Barrow-Whites are victims, And again, the fourth thought was, this is the thing that you were implying, too. The Barrowites themselves are spirits that have been pushed into this, right? They were sent here. Um, they're imprisoned in the Barrows. Old Man Willow... Is Old Man Willow happy? Right? I mean, is he... Uh, they remember. They both remember. They take a different view on these things I am not sure that it isn't with a certain measure of sadness that Tom Bombadil casts out the white. Um, he doesn't want to cast that spirit into outer darkness or wherever exactly it's going to uh, 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 it's, it's, it's going to go. Um, exactly, JJ, all evil creatures are themselves victims, sometimes victims of their own choices, right? It's not to say that they're innocent victims. But at the end of the day, they're all tragic. and and, And who more than Old Man Willow, right? That the mightiest singer of all the trees in the forest should have at least spiritually rotted away at his core. That's sad. That's tragic, right? And I think that Tom Bombadil is well aware that it's tragic. And he's not ready to take out his axe and have it down, or even to not down, which presumably he has time to do, though Sam doesn't. Um, so, anyway, I, 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 the point, again, that I would make is, and this is, I think, a, a generally important principle. Anytime you are reading a text, right? Um, always try as much as you can to build your vocabulary from inside the text itself. It's very tempting, um, with an author like Tolkien, of whom we know much, right, to project stuff in from the outside, to, to first project stuff in from the outside. So like, for instance, we know that Tolkien was Catholic, right? We know that that was, that was very important in his life, so it's very tempting any time we see any, like, to, to, to immediately be like, well, I'm sure he meant that in a Catholic way, or like, so, you know, we, we kind of bring in the sort of relevant Catholic doctrine or relevant Catholic do- definition, right? We, we can't do that. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm not saying that it's not a Christian work or anything like that. I do believe that it is, but that's not the point, right? The point is with any text, the first thing you do is first construct your vocabulary from within. Don't run to an outside source, no matter whether or not it was influential to the author, no matter if you knew that he read it, no matter if you knew that it was super important to him and mattered a lot to him and he talked about it in his letters. It doesn't matter. The first thing you do is you build your vocabulary from within the story, right? It's okay for it to be informed by these outside things, but you can't go there first, right? You need, because if you don't, if you do, if you go outside first, then you're going to end up. You're going to end up at least missing the chance to sort of um, uh, see what is happening within the story on its own terms. Right? It's um, uh, it's uh, it's more. Fun anyway, uh, to do that. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. Ah, uh, that's yeah. Uh, uh, Matt DeForest is recalling Gandalf's. Uh, answer about not being too quick to hand out uh, uh, to, to, to death and judgment, uh, for not even the wise can see all ends. Exactly. Yeah. Not being, uh, acknowledging that you can't see all ends. Matt, we're going to be talking about that very passage, the first draft ever of that passage uh, in Mythgard Academy tomorrow night. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm psyched. Okay. I, Promises, promises. It's near the end of my slide show, so we may or may not get to it. But we're coming up very fast uh, on that passage from the Taming of Smeagol, which is where it started, by the way. Um, You know that uh, little teaser for tomorrow night's class? You know the flashback that Frodo has in the Emin wheel right, in the Taming of Smeagol chapter, back to his conversation with Gandalf? Cool fun fact, right? It originates in the Taming of Sme- Smeagol chapter, right? And then he goes back and he puts that passage back into not the whole thing, but it, but 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 that bit of it, Matt. The uh, uh, for not even the wise can see all ends part was actually inspired by the Taming of Smeagol section, and it gets written back into chapter two. Uh, really, really fun stuff. Uh, anyway, sorry teaser for tomorrow night's Wuthering Class, uh, which is so much fun. But that's a different question. So. Uh, anyway, so yeah, big there are lots of things to be thinking about, not only about sort of how it's again it's not about relativizing good and evil, it's about thinking about what does it mean to be good and what are the responsibilities of goodness and what is the relationship between you know good guys and bad guys exactly. so uh, anyway, um, so. Just uh, thinking that through a little bit. I I'm pretty sure I didn't get to. I didn't get around to saying all that stuff earlier on. I kind of remember thinking about it and not getting around to saying it. So, uh, Randa, for the second week in a row, you have provided a flashback question, which um, uh, which um, uh, it, it was uh. Uh, provided me a fun opportunity to go back and say something that I wanted to say. So anyway, okay, um, let's, um, let's move forward, though, because we are totally finishing Chapter 9 today. Okay, all right, so, song is over, right? We did the song last week. There was loud and long applause. Frodo had a good voice, and the song tickled their fancy. Where's old Barley, they cried. He ought to hear this. Bob ought to learn his cat the fiddle, and then we'd have a dance. They called for more ale and began to shout, "Let's have it again, master! Come on now, once more!" They made Frodo have another drink and then began his and then began his song again, while many of them joined in. For the tune was well known and they were quick at picking up words. It was now Frodo's turn to feel pleased with himself. He capered about on the table, and when he came a second time to the cow jumped over the moon, he leaped in the air much too vigorously, for he came down bang into a tray full of mugs and slipped and rolled off the table with a clash, batter, and bump. Sorry, crash, clatter, and bump. There we go. The audience all opened their mouths wide for laughter and stopped short in gaping silence, for the singer had disappeared. He simply vanished, as if he had gone slap through the floor without leaving a hole. Okay. Uh, What do you notice about this passage, what are some, what are some things that you think are, are, are most important here? Uh, sorry, I also just realized I've got to, wanted to change my audio settings. Um, so I want to hear some observations. Tell me what really strikes you about this passage, about how it's described, all that, all that stuff. If Frodo has another drink, Finn says, yeah, uh, Remember when he first got up on the table, they were thinking that he'd had as much ale as was good for him, right? Uh, and uh, one wonders exactly uh, how much ale Frodo has, in fact, had, right? I'm not saying that I think this whole scene is, like, you know, to be just uh, penciled down to Frodo's inebriation. Um, but it um, <laughs> it seems to have played a, a certain role, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, great. Good observations. So let me start with... Um, let me start with... Uh, uh, so Tony's comment, yes, Frodo is not immune to the same weaknesses as Pippin, right? Um, it is really interesting that, of course, having... Uh, Having tried to distract them from Pippin's story, Pippin having gotten all carried away, right, pleased by their response to the, to the, to the flower dumpling story, uh, he was launching on one of the other favorite stories of home, right, which is Bilbo's farewell address, uh, The Joke which has become legendary. And of course you can see why it would be even more legendary uh, for Pippin and other folks in his generation, like for Pippin, like the, the Pippin and Mary generation, right? This, uh, young adventurous hobbits that have grown up under the influence of Bilbo direct or indirect. And, uh, seem to have a, a kind of a different set of values in some ways, uh, than their, than their forefathers did. Um, The joke, as you may remember from chapter one, was not widely appreciated by the people upon whom it was practiced, right? But in retrospect, the younger generation clearly finds it hilarious, right? So you can see why Pippin uh, would go for that one. But, of course, it's an incredibly foolish thing to do. Uh, Frodo losing his head here uh, shows... Well, the, 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 the consistency, right, Tony, is that is what makes them lose their head, right? And that is the warm response of the audience, right? Both of them are so um, uh, Both of them are so delighted uh, with their reception from the crowd. The, you know, we talked last time um, about how uh, warm, and uh, even affectionate, the hobbits, especially in the crowd, are, right? And how they they, they welcome Frodo, the underhills of Staddle, right? Welcome Frodo to their heart as a long-lost cousin. Um, this is—it's uh, not just that performing is cool, right? And it's not just that uh, they are, you know, kind of uh, getting carried away with being in the spotlight. Both of those things are also true, um, but it's not just that, right? It's about this whole spirit of the room, the way that they enter into this, uh, this, this, this really happy and to them immediately sort of uh, happy and comfortable seems to almost instantly equate to carefree, right? With both of them, and they start behaving recklessly. Frodo did what he ate, wanted to accomplish. He only needed to sing the song once, right? Uh, you know, getting up on the table and singing the song. That's not a good way to remain. Again, like so. Again, like if you're if you're if you're taking notes. On how to best go on the lam, right? You know, if ever you find yourself on the run, needing to keep a low profile with people who are hunting you, standing up on a table in a pub singing a song—not a great method in general, right? But you know, dire circumstances. Pippin was just about to remind everybody of Bilbo and 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 uh, uh, you know, make everybody think about Baggin's and his peculiarities. So that was that was pretty bad. But anyway, so he accomplished it, right? Just, so thank you very much, everybody. You know, go down. Now, Pippin's not going to finish his story, right? Now, he's going to get down and then he's going to excuse them and they're going to leave, right? Mission accomplished, but he sings the song a second time. Why does he sing the song a second time? Because he feels pleased with himself, right? Um, and uh, And they're singing with him, right? They're enjoying it and they're singing along. He's contributing to the general jollity. And remember, that's what the song is about, right? He is participating in the spirit of the song itself. Remember how the song is all about not just jollity and everybody having a good time, but the steady escalation of jollity, right? Until we reach this, like, Crazed fever pitch of jollity, and that's when that's when the cow jumps over the moon, right? Uh, that is the very moment that we finally get the nursery rhyme breaking in, right? Um, the, with the hey diddle diddle and the the little dog laughs and the dish running away with the spoon, right? All that stuff is is you know this is at the at the at the apex of the 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 delight when everyone's leaping from their beds and dancing upon the floor, right? Frodo is caught up not only in the moment with the other people in the room but in the spirit of his song itself and of course you'll notice it's in when the cow jumps over the moon at that moment of like maximum uh uh, uh you know merriment within the song that he also uh goes too far right uh and ends up falling um yeah yeah d schwab is thinking about poor strider in those few moments yeah i can only imagine uh you know we don't it would be fun uh i would be really tempted if i were designing a film adaptation of this scene um i mean I, i i i how peter jackson did it is okay um but I would love to actually give Strider a lot of camera time during this, just sort of the look on his face. I mean, it would be hard not to have him face palming at some point, like when he starts the song a second time. Um, yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. Cringing is sort of the least of it, right? Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, And yeah, Lincoln, you're absolutely right that he's neglecting Mary's advice to remember he's supposed to be undercover, right? Yeah, no, none of them are good at taking anybody's advice. Um, JJ's wondering if he got caught up in his own enchantment. Well, it almost seems so, right? I mean, I'm not saying that this song is magical, but then again, neither was the song of the dwarves in Chapter 1. I don't think that the dwarves were working a magical spell on Bilbo when they sang their song and he sort of fell under the enchantment and began to think those dwarvish thoughts that he catches himself thinking briefly at the end of the dwarf song in chapter one of the Hobbit. um, It's the effect that songs have, right? It's the effect that stories have and that verse has uh, in Tolkien's world. Um, so, yeah, yeah, he... Um, he does i think in that sense get caught up in his own enchantment um, yeah yeah so um yeah yeah link and i know it would uh, spoil the reveal that Strider's indeed a good guy we'd have to see how we were going to play that but uh uh but it would be so hard it would be so hard to uh uh to 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 resist though um, yeah yeah anyway Uh, so, uh, other important observations here, um, let me go back to, uh, uh, some of the other observations you guys were making earlier on, yeah, uh, (laughs) okay, foo-foo. Uh, your name is very interesting. So Fufu points out that the passage is from the perspective of the crowd. That also really strikes me. And uh, this sort of piggybacks on Matt's observation that once again this sounds like the Hobbit narrator. Remember we were talking about that right before the song. Um, that all of a sudden it sounded like we had recovered our chapter one slash the Hobbit narrator, right? Um, only a few lines of it are now, as a rule, remembered. Um, here at the end, yes, again, we have a narrator who is, I think, speaking fairly clearly, right? The audience all opened their mouths wide for laughter and stop short and gaping silence for the singer disappeared. We've left Frodo behind, right? Um, mostly, the narrator is just telling us what Frodo and the other hobbits are doing and thinking, right? That's the narrator's job right? But the narr- the narrator has already, f- before Frodo starts singing, the narrator has stepped back and has begun speaking to us on a different level about events, right? In that, only a few lines of it are now, as a rule, remembered uh, part that I was talking about. But we see he's not gone away, right? Um, he simply vanished as if he had gone slap through the floor without leaving a hole. The narrator... When the narrator uses an exclamation point, I think that's something that we should pay attention to, right? Um, That's kind of unusual, actually. Um, That would be an interesting study. Somebody should look that up. Uh, Find me the times in which um, the narrator, in his own voice, uses an exclamation point. That, I think, would be uh, an interesting kind of test, actually, to to look at... An an interesting way to kind of flag certain passages. Um, But, yeah, Alia Eru, I agree, the... um, Slap through the floor without leaving a hole, even without the exclamation point. I agree with you. That would be notable. And, Matt, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Uh, I would draw the same conclusion, Matt, that you did. This sounds like the Chapter 1 narrator. This sounds like the Hobbit narrator again, right? Slap through the floor without leaving a hole. Um, There's a lot of characters, a lot of personality in that particular expression. He simply vanished would be enough, right? Uh, he he had accomplished what he wanted, but he 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 embellishes, right? Um, as if he himself is a a spectator, right? Is participating in this as if the narrator himself is getting caught up in the sort of jollity of the moment as well, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so. I think that those are interesting moments. Again, I, I'm, I'm kind of working on the uh, hypothesis, right? I'm developing the hypothesis that I want to uh, visit as we go through the book here. I don't think the narrator vanishes. People talk about the narrator vanishing at the end of chapter one, or at least by the end of chapter three. I've even said things like that before. I think vanishes is wrong. I think he, he gets quieter, right? He doesn't show up as often, but he clearly doesn't completely vanish, um yeah anyway um especially when of course we then juxtapose it with what we get next right which is a return um actually it's really it's the the paragraph the frodo felt a fool right when we turn return to saying what frodo was thinking right that's when we kind of return to the narrative voice that we've been uh, we've been used to or familiar with. But, anyway, um, one last thing before we leave this passage quick. Um, we talked about the ring, right, and his resistance to the primary temptation of just putting the ring and escaping out of the silly situation. Um but him sort of falling for the secondary temptation, right? That keeping it there, putting his, keeping his hand in his pocket at all, right? And having his hand near the ring, even, uh, and to be fiddling with it while he was uh, while he was singing and performing. Um, There seems to have been uh, uh, so in the end, what he has done is just what the ring wanted him to do, right? He did not turn his will to obeying the impulse of the ring right He did not set the ring on his finger with the intention of vanishing out of the silly situation he resisted that temptation and yet that's exactly what he ended up doing Galandar exactly putting his hand on the ring to protect it right uh, that's the that's the, the gap right That's the weakness that gets exploited by the ring right. That's where we can see the power of the ring working on him. He makes the right choice, right? And yet that rationalization, oh, but, but I have to keep it safe, right? And yet, oh, there it is right there for him to put on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. The local hobbits stared in amazement, and then sprang to their feet and shouted for Barlamon. All the company drew away from Pippin and Sam, who found themselves left alone in a corner, and eyed darkly and doubtfully from a distance. It was plain that many people regarded them now as the companions of a traveling magician of unknown powers and purpose. But there was one swarthy Brelander, who stood looking at them with a knowing and half-mocking expression, that made them feel very uncomfortable. Presently, he slipped out of the door, followed by the squint-eyed southerner. The two had been whispering together a good deal during the evening. Now, let's pause there for a second. Um, Think about the hobbit's reaction. What are they afraid of? What do they think has happened here? You ever stop and think about that for a second? They regard Frodo as a traveling magician of unknown powers and purpose, right? Um, okay. Um, yeah, traveling magicians, uh, uh, JJ, must have a really tough time. In Brie, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm guessing people don't hire a lot of magicians at birthday parties in Brie, right? That's just clearly not how it works. Um, uh, yeah, Blue Wizard, uh, Gandalf's protege, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? Uh, there is a precedent. We do have a traveling magician, right? Who comes to Brie? Comes through Brie, right? Gandalf is exactly right, right Matt. Uh, uh, Frodo does seem to be a conjurer of cheap tricks, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, and Fufo, I wonder if they have experienced magic before, right? I, They might have done. Um, Butterbur seems to know that Gandalf is a magician, right? And at the very least, they understand, like, people understand that... They might not get what Gandalf is. Nobody really seems to get what Gandalf is. Even Merry and Pippin don't get what Gandalf is. Pippin himself will confess in the return of the king they never even really thought about who Gandalf is. But, um, but they know he's a wizard, right? He's a professional magician. He makes fireworks and stuff and does, does things. Remember even uh, the thing which Bartleman is going to say in the next chapter when he mentions Gandalf as his friend and he stands up for his friend even though he's a magician. Right, even though he's a wizard, you know, a, a wizard they say he is, but he's a good friend of mine. Whether or no, he says, right, and that's darn loyal of Butterbur, and it shows that he knows that some people don't look favorably on uh, uh, magicians, right? But m- not all magicians are bad, right? Um, so you know, I don't really know exactly. Apart from Gandalf, we have no reason to think that they know anything of that they have any experience with actual um, with actual magic before, right? We really don't, we really don't know. Um, it is possible, Cecilia, that they just fear the unknown, right? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I agree, I don't think that. The only wizard they know is Gandalf. As soon as they find that Frodo may be a magician, they're like, oh, he must be shady, right? I don't think we can, from this, draw the conclusion. Therefore, everybody in Bree thinks that Gandalf is shady. It's Gandalf's shady reputation that is making things hard for Frodo right here. I don't think that that's a fair conclusion at all. Um, I think that they're just kind of generally freaked out. Most of them probably don't even... Believe that Gandalf really is a wizard or magician. It's hard for me to imagine that Gandalf has done much very has done much that's very sorcerous while he's there. Maybe. Um, do they? Uh, you think he ever did his uh, predatory, brightly colored smoke ring trick in the pr- in the prancing pony common room? might have done maybe um, anyway but uh, but alia getting back to the point that you are making because I think it's a really important one um, alia says the problem maybe is that it didn't seem the social situation in which a magic trick would have been expected uh, it was a guy dancing on a table show not a magic show um, maybe if it was supposed to be a magic show they would have reacted differently um, yeah that's exactly. Um, that's exactly the um, one of the you know the thing that it makes me think of is Bilbo again in his joke in his birthday party right um, remember what they all said right they thought it was they took it for granted that he had he was doing some ridiculous prank that's another situation where it is interesting to think about what everybody else thought was happening. Right. Gandalf did his flash thing, so they didn't actually watch him vanish. Um, but, um, you know, they just, there was a flash of light, and when they looked up, he was gone. So what do they think happened, right? As far as every single hobbit in the room except Frodo all think that Bilbo has... Okay, and probably Mary, presumably, because he knows about the ring. Um, but anyway, uh, almost every hobbit in the room must think that when the flash of light came, Bilbo sneaked out, possibly crawling under a table or whatever he did uh, in order to sneak out and, and, you know, run away without anybody seeing him and vanishing without a trace. No one's thinking that he actually did magic, right? That was, of course, Gandalf's whole point in making the flash of light. Um, And so they are... There's an uproar in the tent, not because they're like, Bilbo suddenly did magic. Instead, there's an uproar because they're like... Bilbo's acting like an idiot, right? Here's this 111 year old guy who's what crawling under tables in order to appear to vanish, to play a, a, a what a prank on us? Like, oh boy, made you look, didn't I? You didn't know where I went. Wasn't that awesome? And they're like crazy, right? I mean, that's the 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 sort of the tone and the, the sort of the flavor of the outrage, I think, in that um, in that passage here. I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of it, at the very... that's kind of the baseline here, right? Going back to the point that Alia was making, which I think is absolutely right. Um, it may just be tumbling or conjuring, right, to use Butterbur's words um, uh, that he's about to say. Um, that is, it may just be sleight of hand. In the category of sleight of hand, what Frodo just did, right? Um, but but it was inappropriate right Um, because what would be the motivation of it the motivation of it would be to what like freak people out right surprise to surprise people people don't like being surprised all the time right Um, so yeah exactly as Tony says Butterbird doesn't rebuke Frodo for the trick but for the surprise exactly um, but, of course, it seems clear that it's more than just that, right? Um, they're not looking at Pippin and Sam as if Pippin and Sam are, you know, in the company of a crazy weirdo who plays so- socially inappropriate tricks, right? Um, I do think there is that. But they're also, what like, the trick came on them so suddenly that they're not sure that there wasn't real magic in it. Especially since this, he's from out of town, this guy. Who knows? Right? Who knows what these crazy hobbits from the Shire can do? Maybe they can do magic. Maybe there's something weird going on here. Right? Um, uh, it looked like he went through the, f- through the floor without leaving a hole. And again, this could be explained as a magic trick. Right? And that's how Frodo's going to kind of try to pass it off. Um... But uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, So yes, the whole the question of uh, the darkly and doubtfully, right? Um, unknown powers and purpose. Um, A, can he really do magic? What's he here for? Because, and remember, that's not just if he's, um, if he's magical, right? If he's not magical, what's his purpose? Why is he here in Bree? Uh, is he here to trick us, to play pranks on us, to deceive us, to rob us? I mean, who knows, right? You can't just trust people who come wandering in. It can be, be up to all kinds of uh, shady things. Right? Um, But one swarthy Brioander has a knowing and half-mocking expression, which makes them feel very uncomfortable. So, what does Bill Fernie know? Bill Fernie gives them a knowing look, Pippin and Sam. What does he know? Do you think? What does that mean? A knowing and half-mocking expression that made them feel very uncomfortable. What is going on in the uh, unpleasant head of Bill Fernie right here? Um, Finn, I agree. He can't know about the ring. There's no way. There is no way the Black Riders told Bill Fernie as soon as they arrived in town, like, and he's got a magic ring that makes him invisible, right? Can't possibly be. Um, yeah, <laughs> Mario, presumably it is not uh, uh, that the, the one... Uh, uh, the, this is the one ring that gives the Keeper the power to rule the world. Yeah, probably not. Um. It's got to be about their identities. Rothgar, as you pointed out, um, Marianne, as you were suggesting, it's, uh, the Black Riders would have told him that they were looking for hobbits from the Shire. We know this, right? Bill, or, uh, Harry Goatleaf at the gate. I mean, you, we could tell that he had been prompted with that too, right? Um, I don't think his knowing expression has anything to do with the disappearing I don't think so. How could it? Right? Uh, I mean, seriously, do we really think that Bill Fernie's sitting there watching them, being like, huh, are these the hobbits that those black chaps were asking about? And then Frodo vanishes, falls off the table and vanishes, and he's like, oh, he vanished. Ah, now I'm sure. I was was on the fence before, but now I'm sure that... uh, this is the Hobbit that they're looking for. I can't believe that that's, in fact, what's going on with Bill Fernie here. Um, uh, Cecilia, yeah, I wonder, Cecilia suggesting that perhaps even his interruption of the story about Baggins... Baggins would, of course, be a name that the, uh, the Black Riders would have mentioned, right, uh, to Bill Fernie uh, and his ilk. Um, the mere fact that Frodo interrupted the story about Baggins might itself have created that knowing expression, right? So perhaps uh, Frodo's interruption was already altogether fruitless. Uh, Mike is wondering if maybe they were asked to look for Shire hobbits who behave strangely, right? I don't think you did. I mean, would they even have to specify, right, of all the hobbits from the Shire, with which Bree is doubtless just awash right now, how you can pick these particular hobbits out of the crowd is they might do something weird, right? I, I don't even think that would be necessary. But, um, uh, anyway, uh, I think it's, um, Hmm, Finn is wondering if, because the guy, the, um, the, the, what's his name? The, the squint-eyed southerner that he goes out with, right? Who is almost certainly a spy of Saruman's. Um, Finn is wondering if maybe this, uh, the, the squint-eyed southerner gave him some information, you know, which was other than, or in ad- addition to what the Black Rider, uh, had for him or, or, or told him. Um, hmm. what, if so? I can't imagine... That Saruman is any more explicit with his spy than the Black Riders would be. I mean, would Saruman have told this, like, half-orc dude? Hey, um... Uh... You know, the... The... the um... You know, everything is, um... Uh... Yeah, you know, this guy has an invisibility ring. Go find him. Like, he's not going to say that. Um, By the way, am I still coming through okay? Everything working all right? My Twitter feed just suddenly died, and so I'm just hoping that that doesn't mean that my internet connection went out. So, okay. Good. Excellent. Um, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think... Good. So I think that the knowingness in Bill Fernie's expression has to be just, I know who you are, right? He's known who he was from the beginning, like Shire Hobbits, right? Um, he's just taking this opportunity to rub it in to Pippin and Sam, and they're leaving because... Lots of people. Everyone's pretty much clearing out at that point, right? So this is just Bill Fernie who has doubtless been sitting there f- smug and knowingly the whole time, right? But now just sort of choosing to rub it in with them. And mocking, right? Half mocking because I'm sure he thinks uh, they have made a hilar- done a hilariously bad job of staying inconspicuous. Um, I mean... It's kind of, it would be kind of funny, right? Um, If you knew somebody was trying to, you know, maintain a low profile, you've been on the, you you got tipped off, right? Let me know if you find these fugitives who are going to be sneaking through town. And he's sitting there and they're performing on a table in the Prancing Pony, right? And he's like, oh yeah, these are awesome fugitives right here. Um, So... So, yeah, and, and Gallandor, yeah, he is sure he's going to be rewarded by the Black Rider when he gives him this information, absolutely. Um, I, I can't think that he knows anything more than that and that he's mocking them for any other reason. But, uh, Pippin and Sam don't know that for sure, right? And I think it it's... it This... The way this is described is a really great job of kind of putting us in their shoes or feet, seats, wherever they are, right? Uh, To put us in their position. That is, it's totally natural. In fact, it's almost inescapable for Pippin and Sam and Frodo as well to see this knowing and half-mocking expression by this seedy-looking Brelander and think, Wait, what does he know? How much does he know? He can't know. No right you know that kind of speculation that kind of paranoia seems almost um seems almost inevitable right um yeah yeah um yeah rothgar i'm not sure this is the first time bill fernie has found himself in a superior position over another he he seems to me like the bully type um i think he's often found uh, positions uh, in which to lord it over others who are weak or vulnerable in other, in other places. We see this is a pattern of his, right? Um, take advantage of people when you f- have an opening to take advantage of people, right? Um, yeah. Poor Bill the Pony, says Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. No, I think he's he's been... Bill the Pony has to have been pretty significantly mistreated, right? Um, anyone who is under the power of Bill Fernie, right? Whom Bill Fernie could, um, you know, like, beat with impunity. He probably does. Um, Anyway, let's keep going. Frodo felt a fool. Not knowing what else to do, he crawled away under the tables to the dark corner by Strider, who sat unmoved, giving no sign of his thoughts. Great poker face Strider has. Frodo leaned back against the wall and took off the ring. How it came to be on his finger, he could not tell. He could only suppose that he had been handling it in his pocket while he sang, and that somehow it had slipped on when he stuck out his hand with a jerk to save his fall. For a moment he wondered if the ring itself had not played him a trick. Perhaps it had tried to review itself in response to some wish or command that was felt in the room. He did not like the looks of the men that had gone out. Okay. Okay. Did the ring try to reveal itself in response to some wish or command that was felt in the room? Did that happen? What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Corey Schwab says, not this time. Um... Yeah, no, I I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Yeah, Mariel says, well, Frodo wanted to escape. Yeah, maybe from Frodo himself, right? Um, Note, um, this is not the narrator just talking, right? This is not the narrator telling us that the ring had felt, uh, uh, had tried to reveal itself in response to some wish or command that was felt in the room. This is Frodo wondering if that's what happened. Right. This is Frodo being paranoid. Um, I think there's no way that there was a wish or command from outside in the room. Um, The only entity that could do that kind of thing would be one of the ringwraiths. And they are not in the room right? The mugworts were not uh, commanding the ring to reveal itself. Uh, You know, Bill Fernie was... That's who Frodo's afraid of, right? He did not like the looks of the men that had gone out. Um, You know, uh, what's he doing to Bill Fernie and the Squint-eyed southerner? Um, Eyeing him darkly and doubtfully from a distance? uh, 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 Thinking that they have unknown powers and purpose, right? That's kind of... um, uh, that's kind of exactly the way that he's looking at at Bill furney and the squint-eyed Southerner, right? Um, yeah, so 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 no, um, but it's interesting, I think, and important that Frodo thinks that the Ring might itself have played a trick. Right? Um, we see Frodo himself distrusting the Ring, and. I think that that's important in two ways, right? Number one, this is important because it shows that he is not—it shows how—you know, we were seeing that his rationalization, right, his like, but I must certainly keep it safe, right, was was a rationalization, shows that he is, in fact, under the influence of the ring. This shows that he's not yet completely under the influence of the ring, Right. Um, the fact that he can be suspicious of it, uh, and think that the ring is, it's, is trying to do mischief, right? That's like kind of a good sign, right? But it's also a questionable sign in that, you know, D. Schwab, just as you were saying, D. Schwab says, no, Frodo, it was your wish, right? That is to say, in a sense, this is also like another rationalization, right? Um, that, um... He's not taking responsibility for his own choice. Uh, and he's uh uh, you know, trying to find sort of someone else to blame for this, right? Um it must have been somebody else commanding the ring to reveal itself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not so sure here. You know Matt was saying this earlier. Um, Blue Wizard is just talking about this now. I think it's it's worth thinking about. Is Frodo's hand in his pocket the whole time? His hand is in his pocket when he's talking, right? At the beginning when he's saying his his, uh, his few suitable words. Um, while he's capering and dancing and jumping, uh, you know, on the tabletops, is he still got his hand in his pocket while he does that? That's hard to imagine, hard for me to imagine, that he would. I guess it's possible. Um, but I wonder. Because if he hasn't, what it suggests is that he's actually holding the ring in his hand. Right? Um, either he's got his hand in his pocket, which is awkward. and That in itself would be interesting. Right? Um, that he is sort of acting sort of physically... Unnaturally, right? Uh, capering and dancing with one hand in his pocket um, because the, you know, he feels like he's got to keep the ring safe. Um, so again, he's, it sort of suggests he's being sort of acted on in some way, or else he's actually holding the ring in his hand, which is the opposite of keeping the ring safe, right? Um, one way or another, it again seems to sort of show, I think of Bilbo. Um, Wanting, choosing in the end to put the envelope on the mantle, but not being able, you know, his hand pulling back and dropping the envelope onto the floor. Like it's not being able to get his, his person, like his body to completely obey the decision that his will had made. Right. Um, uh, so I. Uh, it makes me wonder. If this is something one way or the other, <clears throat> whether he's holding the ring in his hand or whether he's got his hand in his pocket, in either case, it seems to me that he's, uh, um, he's in a strange position, which seems to me to be kind of, uh, suggestive that the ring is kind of acting on him in some way here. Um, yeah. Anyway, um... By the way, in neither position can I imagine accidentally putting on a ring. If my hand is in my pocket, I mean, the odds that I'm going to keep my hand in my pocket and merely stick my finger through the thing that I'm holding in my pocket... While I'm falling, I mean, like, how you can keep your hand in the pocket, like, in your pants pocket, or if that's where it is, how you can keep your hand in your pocket while you're falling off a table to the ground is is more than I can think of, right? And similarly, if I'm holding a ring in my closed fist that I definitely don't want to put on my finger in front of people, and I'm falling, if I what is he, uh, if I stick out my hand with a jerk to save my fall, I'm gonna drop the ring, the thing in my hand. I'm not gonna, I don't see how that leads to my suddenly putting it through my finger. Um, anyway, it's, um, uh, yeah, yeah, so, and yeah, Bricktails asks a very relevant question to which I do not know the answer. Uh, how far does the ring have to be on his finger to have a magical effect? Uh, do you have to like, to, like is, to Do you have to have it all the way up past the first joint or the second joint? You know, and before the power really. Ta- I have no idea, no no clue at all. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is not that um, I find this the Tolkien's description here implausible, but rather. Again, one way or another, whether his hand was in his pocket or whether the ring was in his hand, whether the ring got onto his finger while it was you know, from either place, the ring getting on the the ring getting on his finger seems to be a uh, uh, unusual, right? Um, An unusual kind of uh, 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 kind of move. I think that the ring is taking a hand here. We know the ring can do stuff, right? This seems to be in the kind of thing, you know, the ring can suddenly get bigger or smaller, right, to try to slip off a finger on which it had been tight, right? Uh, We have Gandalf's words that the ring left Gollum. Um, I think the ring is trying to leave Frodo here, too, or at least to expose him. I think the ring is taking a more direct hand here uh, in... Uh, in the event, did he give in to the temptation? No, he resisted the primary temptation. But I think we again, we are seeing the um, the consequences of him giving in to the secondary temptation. Why? Why did he have that second impulse to keep his hand on the ring and make sure to keep it safe? Right. Because. The 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 ring wants him to put it on. And so he is, like, overtly resisting that temptation, and yet, like, subconsciously giving in to that temptation. And we see that he does, in fact, uh, in that sense, uh, give in to it. Um, yes, Cecilia, it is, uh, at least in part, a will other than Frodo's that made the accident happen. But it wasn't the will of somebody else in the room, right? There was nobody else in the room commanding the ring. Um, it, this is where I agree uh, with D. Schwab earlier on. No, Frodo, it was you. It was you, Frodo, right? Um, you set that up when you decided to dance on a table with, you know, the ring of power in your hand, uh, and uh, and this is what happened as a consequence like it. Um, yeah. Now, Mike, I agree. Um, you're right that like at Tom's, him not sneaking, him not getting across the threshold and out the door is still kind of a victory. Right. Not the main victory, but still better than nothing. Yeah, I agree. Him resisting that initial temptation. Uh, that's still it's still good. Right. I don't know if the whole thing counts as a win, but uh, but it, it's definitely it does show us he's not he's not yet. You know, he's, he's not yet just giving into it all the time. Um, but I still think it's a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, okay, um, yeah, so he decides to sneak over by Strider, um, And it seems, based on the description, he crawled away under the tables to the dark corner by Strider. He's not going over to—he's not, like, returning to Strider. He's returning to the dark corner, and it seems to be the darkness of the corner that he's primarily seeking, right? He wants to find a place in the room where he can take off the ring and not make a double sensation by suddenly becoming visible, in the middle of everybody, right? I mean, that's the really awkward thing about this whole situation, right? It was bad enough to disappear in front of everybody. You're going to absolutely confirm things if you reappear in front of everybody. And he can't even leave the room, right? Because the doors are closed. So, so, he's, so he does the next best thing, which is to sneak over to the dark corner. I agree. I forget who said it earlier on, but um, maybe the best thing he could have done was to review himself right away so that it looked like, hey, look, I did just, in fact, crawl under the... But he doesn't review himself right away, right? He takes off the ring and then still sits there and talks quietly to Strider. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And so, Mike, yes, chance of chance you call it has him end up with Strider. Um, Well, it's not a coincidence, right? Because Strider is sitting in the darkest corner of the room because he's the shadiest character in the room. So, uh, you know, it's all... It's all very natural. Um Okay. Well, said Strider when he reappeared, why did you do that? Worse than anything your friends could have said. You have put your foot in it, or should I say your finger? I don't know what you mean, said Frodo, annoyed and alarmed. Oh, yes, you do, answered Strider, but we had better wait until the uproar has died down. Then, if you please, Mr. Baggins, I should like a quiet word with you. What about? asked Frodo, ignoring the sudden use of his proper name. A matter of some importance to us both, answered Strider, looking Frodo in the eye. You may hear something to your advantage. Very well, said Frodo, trying to appear unconcerned. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Um, Notice again. The knowing look of Bill Fernie, right? And the kind of paranoid speculation that that immediately seems to engender, right? What what are they? No, they couldn't they, they couldn't know about the ring, right? They look all they looked all smug and like their theories had all been confirmed, right? Is it because of the invisibility. Do they know about the ring, right? And then as soon as we say no, they couldn't possibly have known about the ring. The literally the first person Frodo talks to in the common room at the first stranger that he talks to after putting on the ring clearly knows about the ring, right? You have put your foot in it, or should I say your finger? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Galandar, that's exactly what I was thinking. Galandar is, uh, is imagining Strider thinking, oh goodness, what has Gandalf saddled me with this time? Exactly. I subtitled this slide, A Dubious Traveling Companion. And I didn't mean Strider. I meant Frodo, right? Because, of course, Frodo doesn't even know that Strider's going to be his traveling companion yet, right? But Strider does. Strider knows that he's been he's waiting here for Gandalf's friend the Hobbit to come out of the Shire bearing the Ring of Power, right? He knows all this stuff already. So he's been pretty sure who Frodo was, right? And now he's had it pretty well confirmed. Strider knows is the only other one in the room other than Frodo and Sam and Pippin who know exactly what just happened, right? And so here's Strider thinking, oh my god what the heck I'm supposed to travel with I mean, you've got to think, the most charitable thing that Strider could be thinking is like I've got to, I've got to yes, Fufu, babysitting, right, I've got to babysit this idiot, right oh boy, like You know, this is the best keeper that Gandalf could find for the Ring of Power. Somebody who puts it on on a tabletop in the common room of Bree, right? With Black Riders right outside town. Good grief. Yes, Lincoln says, I have a bad feeling about this. You've got to think that Strider does too. Um, His question, why did you do that? Right? Well? (laughs) I love the well, right? Like he's expecting... Frodo like it like goes without saying that Frodo has to answer to him right well, right? I assume you've come over here with an explanation. Um, why did you do that? Worse than anything your friends could have said. It's, it's and this is a great question, right? Why did you do that? Because remember what we were just talking about, right? It is wildly implausible that this happened accidentally. Right? I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just very, very implausible. Right. Um, so his he has to conclude, you're strider, right? You've never met this hobbit before, right? And you're you're what and you, you watch this happen. He has got to be thinking, he just he just did that, right? He just put the ring on. So, what? What are your options here, right? What? Your Strider. I mean, what are your interpretive options here? He's either a complete moron, right? Has just no idea of his day, or he's an utter fool, right? Um, you know, like, is he? Is he that reckless? right? Does he think this is a Hobbit, forget Hobbit walking party. Does he think that this is a, a one big Hobbit prank? Does he think that this whole quest is just some practical joke that he's involved in? Does he have the faintest idea what's going on? And then, um, yeah, JJ, there is that Strider does know Bilbo, right? Is he thinking that Frodo's copying Bilbo's birthday joke? Yeah, the one that Pippin was just telling the story of. So here he's like, Pippin is going to tell the story of Bilbo disappearing, right? We have to stop that. So instead, you're going to reenact it? Seriously? I mean, yeah, so this is um, incredibly foolish. Or, yeah, I mean, Cecilia, that's the other possibility, right? Does he have to at least, does it have to cross his mind, Wait a second. Okay. Either, either this guy is the, like, the greatest fool ever, right? Um, or he's trying to give it away. Or he's trying to draw attention to himself. I mean, this has got to be on the table, right, for, like, an interpretation of that. Of that uh, and I think that that's what he's getting at here. You have put your foot in it, or should I say your finger? right um you know that he's he's so, so you know you have really messed up this situation why does he reveal why does he hint at the fact that he knows what was going on here right he doesn't have to do that why does he do that right partly i think it's to gain credibility with frodo but i wonder if there's just just the whiff of a rebuke there right um even a like, I know, right? And if you're thinking that you're like that, you can just betray things. I'm on to you, right? I wonder. I wonder if there's an element of uh, of of warning in that sense. There, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Frodo is annoyed and alarmed. Annoyed, of course, because he has no answer to the question, why did you do that, right? I mean, uh, oh, oh, I mean, it's, somebody was mentioning, I forget who it was, it, it's, it sort of sounds like conversations that you've had with your toddler. Um, totally agree. Um, yeah, Blue Wizard was saying that. Um, it's like asking a misbehaving toddler why they did something bad. Can't imagine he expects an answer. No, Blue Wizard, you do expect an answer, and the answer you expect is, I don't know. <laughs> right? That's what he's gonna say, and of course, that's the answer, right? Why did you do? I don't. I don't. It was. It. It was an accident. It just happened. Right. Um, in, in, uh, in other words, he's gonna he's gonna respond exactly like uh, like a child might. Um. Yeah. Anyway um I don't know what you mean. Oh yes you do. Know exactly what I mean. Right. Um Frodo is trying to pass it off and Strider won't let him pass it off, right? Um we both know what's going on here. We we have to one way or another, we have to get to the bottom of this, right? If you're an idiot, you need protection. Uh, If you're a knave, then you need some more serious attention, right? I'm not going to let you just throw away the Ring of Power where the enemy can, uh, can, um, can get it. But we had better wait until the uproar has died down. Then if you please, Mr. Baggins, I should like a quiet word with you, right? I know who you are. Don't think you can mess with me buster. I I really do think that this is, you know, it's, it's I don't want to overplay it. I do think that he is trying to give Frodo signals. I know who you are. I am on your side, right? He is laying the foundation for that conversation that they're going to have. But I am, in advance, taking seriously something that Strider is going to say in the next chapter. Namely, that he has to make sure of them first. And if you look at this scene from Strider's point of view, it looks extremely questionable. Um, JJ, exactly what you were just typing, JJ. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, Blue is it? I don't think that Frodo misses that he calls him Baggins. He ignores the sudden use of his proper name because he doesn't want to go there, right? Um, because to go... It, what's it going to say? Hey, how did you know I was... <laughs> you know, he, then he'd give himself... So, he's trying to play it cool now, right? Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, I, I agree, and Cecilia's reminding us, and this is a really important thing. Spoilers, right? We don't know who Strider is. We don't yet have any reason to... I, it's It's easy for us to reconstruct this event from the future, with in t- containing our future knowledge, right? Understanding not only that Strider is a good guy, but knowing much about him, right? And what his character is like, and the kinds of things he's capable of, and all of those kinds of things. This is, um, you know, as Cecilia was saying she remembers the first time reading it, and being convinced that he was really a black writer in disguise, right? There is that possibility. We have every reason to think that Strider is just as shady as he looks, right? Just as, as shady as Butterbur seems to think he is, right? Um, and, but in addition, I also want to think it through from Strider's point of view, right? Um, it's clear that he has some very serious doubts. Exactly, Veronica. He looks foul and feels fair, but that means he does have to look foul, right? Um. And uh, uh, he has to seem shady, right? Um, You may hear something to your advantage, he says. Even that, why does he say that? On the one hand, it sort of fits the character that he's in, right? It seems to... um, That is... If if Butterbur doesn't actually believe that he's a ruffian, he's got to wonder, right? You know, he's one of them rangers that they 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 live out in the wild, right? How do you think those people make their living? Do you think he's got a farm somewhere, right? Off in the wild, if you travel off far enough, you'll come to this nice little tidily maintained plot of land where Strider raises barley, right? I don't think so, right? And I don't think that Butterbur thinks so. I think if you really asked Butterbur and said, okay, Strider, um, how does he support himself? Barlaman probably has some dark suspicions. Right? He's probably a highway robber. He's probably a ruffian. right? Can't prove it. Right? But Butterbert, you know, and it seems to be acting in a like, you know, innocent until proven guilty kind of uh, uh, kind of way, but I don't see any reason to think that he's not pretty seriously dubious about Strider's legitimacy. Right? Um, you know, th- that he may actually be a criminal type. Right? Um, and so here, Strider kind of playing up in that, in, that, um, um, in that mode says, you may hear something to your advantage, right? There might be profit in it, right? He's got a scheme that he wants to involve Frodo in, right? At least that's the approach that he seems to take here. Why? And again, I wonder if one reason why he says that, again, he's being circumspect, but is he also still testing out Frodo, right? How's Frodo going to respond to that? If Frodo responds, if he says uh, it's a matter of some importance to us both, you may hear something to your advantage. If Frodo responds to that eagerly, right? Um, Then uh, uh, again, it might show that he's not who he says he is, or that you know, he really is some kind of... Like Gandalf is wrong about him, and he's some kind of chancer who's just going to chuck the ring away or give the ring away or sell it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, D. Schwab, I, I, I think you're right that you know he's trying to leave everything open to because the, there are two options, right? Either Frodo is is a setup to trap Strider and the other Rangers, or he's the Hobbit that Strider is looking for. Yeah, exactly. But but remember, uh, D, <laughs> right? Uh, that um, there's also there's also there 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 are more options there. He may be the Hobbit that he's looking for, right? But he doesn't know him. Right? He knows Bilbo, but he doesn't know him. Um, and from what he's just seen, again, like even if he is the hobbit that he's looking for, he's either A, an idiot, or B, a knave. So, um, you know, even that option is not a- an uncomplicated one, right? Um, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. No, Brandon, yes. If the rangers are seen as a traveling band of people, they're all probably seen as shady. Yes, exactly. When you have traveling groups of people, right? You know, when you, if, when, a, when a, a group of itinerant people come and set up uh, their wagons in your village, what does everybody say, right? They're going to steal everything, right? Everyone, everyone says, oh, better tie everything down because they're going to rob us blind, right? That's what people say. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that, that they would suspect uh, 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 Brandon, the, they probably, the Brelanders, probably suspect all rangers, of being little better than brigands. Right? Well-behaved, apparently. I mean, Strider can tell a rare tale when he has a mind, but, you know, that doesn't show that he's honest. Right? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, Matt asks a great question. Um, does Strider have a real sense of the tempting that the ring does? He's never encountered it except in stories. Yeah, I don't know how much Strider understands. Um, I, I I can't imagine he knows too much. Even Gandalf doesn't know all that much. What does Gandalf know about it, right? I I, I gotta think that almost all like the Gandalf has what he can extrapolate from his conversation with Bilbo before Bilbo's departure, and from his conversation with Gollum, right? His interrogation of Gollum. Those are the only two pieces of evidence that even Gandalf has for how the ring impacts its wielder, right? Its holder. And, um, he's probably talked about this with Aragorn some, but I can't imagine that Aragorn can really kind of break down what must have been going on in Frodo's head there. Yeah. Um... Yeah, JJ says does Strider know that Gandalf and Bilbo consider Frodo the best Hobbit in the Shire? If so, he must imagine that Shire folk on the whole are very, very incapable indeed. Uh, yeah, I, I, first of all, he's got to, he's got to, right? Um, Gandalf has to have mentioned Frodo. I mean, it's been seventeen years, right? So Gandalf has told Aragorn about the Ring. You know, they're 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 a team on this, right? And he Gandalf would have told him that Frodo had it so yeah and i'm sure he has assured aragorn right oh yeah the guy i left it with he is the best yes he, he is absolutely top shelf among hobbits, right? This guy, like, trust me, I have left the rings in as good hands as I possibly could have. And then the first day that Strider meets him, he's dancing on tables and putting on the ring in the common room. Uh, at the oh, I mean, that, that, that's that got to be a scene that Gandalf and Aragorn are going to laugh about later, m- much later. But in retrospect, that will be really funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, C. Schwab is reminding us that uh, uh, Aragorn is also good friends with Bilbo, and Bilbo would have talked about his favorite nephew, certainly. Yeah, so he, he, he would have thought that he knew him, right? Or knew of him, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And yes, J.J., you're right. Thorne was also assured that he was getting a top-notch burglar, too. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, J.J. I wonder if we can actually even see a kind of a parallel there, right? Um, compare and contrast Frodo's or, uh, Thorin's uh, uh state of mind, right on the evening of the unexpected party you know, at night of the unexpected party and Aragorn's frame of mind here um yeah, yeah um yeah, good and I love Frodo trying to you know, pass things off as if he's uh, you know to try to play it cool. Meanwhile, an argument was going on by the fireplace. Mr. Butterbur had come trotting in, and he was now trying to listen to several conflicting accounts of the event at the same time. "'I saw him, Mr. Butterbur,' said a hobbit. "'Or least a ways. I didn't see him, if you take my meaning. He just vanished into thin air, in a manner of speaking.' "'You don't say, Mr. Mugwort,' said the landlord, looking puzzled. "'Yes, I do,' replied Mugwort. "'And I mean what I say, what's more?' "'There's some mistake somewhere,' said Butterbur, shaking his head. "'There was too much of that Mr. Underhill to go vanishing into thin air, "'or into thick air, as is more likely in this room.' "'Well, where is he now?' cried several voices. "'How should I know? He's welcome to go where he will, so long as he pays in the morning. "'There's Mr. Took now. He's not vanished.' "'Well, I saw what I saw, and I saw what I didn't,' said Mugwort obstinately." and i say there's some mistake repeated butterbur picking up the tray and gathering up the broken crockery um so here's my question here why does butterbur respond as he does why does butterbur insist that there's some mistake And Emma Thorne, yes, Butterbur absolutely is making a fat joke about Frodo. Um, uh... Yeah. Yep. So, Tarlonio, I agree, he's de-escalating, right? Oakwig says he's trying to diffuse the situation with humor. Yes. Um, so, merely that he would say let's calm down everybody, it seems a a sensible kind of response uh, for the innkeeper to have. Um, uh there must be some mistake. I'm sure there's a perfectly natural explanation, right? Uh, you know, seem like the kind of, uh, uh, seem like the kind of, uh, of reassurances one, one could imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. To, Daniel says, Butterbur walks into a, thank you, Daniel, for explaining what the D was for. Uh, Butterbur walks into a room full of mostly drunk guests, and, yeah, exactly, uh, this might not be the first time that he's had to settle a dispute or of like what did or did not happen, right? Um Yeah. Uh and uh uh Brandon I totally agree. I saw what I saw and I saw what I didn't. Uh is I, I've always loved that line. Very hobbity, as you say. Um Oh, yeah, no, Hrothgar, uh, thick air is a reference to the smoke and heat of the room. The the fat joke is there was too much of that Mr. Underhill to go vanishing. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, you know, sort of a gentle fat joke, as Tolkienian fat jokes go, but... um, Veronica, I agree that he knows more about Frodo than he lets on. Um, Peeking up ahead... Right. Um, he is just about to say that he's about to set up his appointment with Frodo, right? He's making his appointment to talk with Frodo later on because he's remembered the letter. Right? Um, the remembering of the letter has already happened. Um, we can tell because he immediately, you know, without going out again or doing anything else, he, he asks Frodo to see him later on. Um, I do wonder how much of his diffusing of the situation is because he's realized, A, this guy is probably that friend of Gandalf to whom I was supposed to send that letter, and B, uh, I probably caused some trouble. By, I feel really bad about the fact that I forgot that letter and there was this friend that Gandalf said I was supposed to help out and I said I would and then I didn't, so maybe I should try to, like, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of think that there's... Um, Um, you know, would Gandalf have told Butterbur about Frodo's mission? No, Lady Shmebuak, I don't think so. But he does know that he's Gandalf's friend, right? Um, I can't imagine that Butterbur knows any more than this, you know, Gandalf has a friend in the Shire that he's supposed to, that he's supposed to, uh, 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 to, to, to send him to. And then remember, he does say, Gandalf does say that he might be coming through Bree, right? So he's, the, the idea that that friend would then later on be coming, um, was part of the original message, right? And that he Butterbur is supposed to help him all that he could. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I I'm wondering. I I think that we may see that be sort of operating here already. That he is already kind of acting on um, on on Frodo's side here, trying so that he's not just trying to diffuse the situation um, by sort of easing things off. And if you think about it, actually, in a sense, um, uh, in a sense, it's not necessarily in his best interest as an innkeeper to, to sweep this under the rug, right? Um, in his personal... It would seem to me it would be in his personal best interest... Instead of trying to hush it up or say, oh, no, no, I'm sure it was nothing special. I'm sure it was. It would be like, oh, wow, like, what happened? Hey, I know. Let's everybody come back again tomorrow and talk about it more, right? And You know, the idea that there was a sensation to be talked over at the inn, um, even in the circumstances, as we'll see, is a reassurance to him, right? Uh, it's, good, it's good for business, right? Um, saying that actually nothing special happened at the Prancing Pony tonight is not in his commercial best interests, right? So that's why... That's another thing that leads me to think that he's already kind of trying to protect Frodo here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, by the way, we also see Mugwort emphasizing here the vanishing, right? Not just that he pulled some trick, but that he saw, you know... uh, I saw him or least a ways, I didn't see him if you take my meaning. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right, Bricktails, there is nothing to see here. That's exactly the problem, right? That would be a that would be a deeply ironic way to try to defuse the crowd here. Uh, absolutely. Um, but uh, now, again, Butterbur's response is practical, right?, um, That is to say, if they're worried that like some magician of unknown powers is around who might do some other, you know, hideous magic, right? It is perfectly possible to say, I'm sure, you know, like sleight of hand happened, right? Like it really looked like you actually pulled a rabbit out of that hat too. Right. Um, but that's how it works. Right. Um, so when he says, Oh, you know, there's some mistake, right. uh, I, uh um, where is he now? How should I know? Right? He's not going to, he's not going to, he, he can't explain it, but that doesn't mean uh, that there isn't an explanation. Um, he seems to be planting this idea that it's not that you didn't see what you saw, right? But, you know, you probably saw just what you were supposed to see, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. "'Of course there's a mistake,' said Frodo, now finally piping up. "'I haven't vanished. Here I am. "'I've just been having a few words with Strider in the corner.' "'Oh, Frodo, seriously? That's your cover story?' Oh, yeah. So, you know, this guy over here, the one that you totally don't trust and you think, but you know, you may or may not think is a ruffian and a highway robber and you're not super comfortable when he's in your inn in the first place. And you probably think that him and everybody that he knows are like seriously shady and probably thieves. Um, I'm totally fine. I was just hanging out with him. Right. So, like, I am a traveling conjurer and Strider's in it. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, OK. That's good. That's good, Frodo. That'll, that'll ease there. <laughs> that'll ease. And that'll make, everyone's going to feel great about this now. He came forward into the firelight, but most of the company backed away, even more perturbed than before. Understandably, right? As and You've got to think that the two options, right, were either this was a silly prank or this was uh, some kind of scary magic, right? In any one way or the other, right? Oh, and by the way, this is um, this is an, another possibility. Somebody just mentioned this. Who was it just mentioned this? Oh yeah, Bricktails was just mentioning this. It's also, of course, possible that Frodo could be a victim, right? Um, somebody vanished, like. It doesn't necessarily mean that the vanish the vanishy was in on it, right? I mean, you know, fairy tales do contain sudden vanishings in which someone is whisked away, right? So you know, it's it's possible that he's that he's the victim and not the doer of the magic, but still it's freaky. Anyway I've been having a few words with Strider in the corner. Oh, and my accomplice is the shady guy. Right now, all of a sudden, it's this like whole new world of 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 interpretation has been open to them, and it's not good. Right? Okay. So you're not a victim. Maybe you're not a victim. Maybe you're not a magician. Uh, you know, maybe you're you're like, you, you don't actually do magic. Maybe you weren't just playing a totally inappropriate prank on us. Maybe you're like a con artist in cahoots with a really shady guy. And this is like part of some two man con that you guys are working on. Oh, geez. Uh, not good. Not good. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, He came forward into the firelight, right? They're even more perturbed than before. They were not in the least satisfied by his explanation that he had crawled away quickly under the tables after he had fallen. Most of the hobbits and the men of Bree went off then and there in a huff, having no fancy for further entertainment that evening. Uh, Further entertainment, right? Meaning the song, but also possibly the magic trick, right? Uh, one or two gave Frodo a black look and departed muttering among themselves. The dwarves and the two or three strange men that still remained got up and said good night to the landlord, but not to Frodo and his friends. Right? They don't seem to care very much. They were not even necessarily paying that close attention. Um, but it's clear that those people are questionable. So they're just ignoring them and walking out. Right? And they're leaving because everyone else has left. Uh, before long, no one was left but Strider, who sat on unnoticed by the wall. Mr. Butterbird did not seem much put out. He reckoned, very probably, that his house would be full again on many future nights until the present mystery had been thoroughly discussed. Now, what have you been doing, Mr. Underhill, he asked, frightening my customers and breaking up my crocks my with your acrobatics? Um... Yeah, acrobatics, right? He does seem to... I think that Butterbur... There's no way that Butterbur thinks he's a magician, right? Now, is a friend of Gandalf, so I suppose it's not utterly impossible. Um, but I think that Butterbur actually does believe that it was just some kind of sleight of hand, right? Some kind of prank on Frodo's part. That there is a perfectly natural explanation for it, and that he just did some trick that made everybody think that he disappeared, Right. Um, Acrobatics. Right. That's that's clearly what he was doing, even though most of them aren't satisfied. Right. Because that's a boring explanation. Um, There are so I mean, of all of the explanations that we've just been talking about. Right. The fact that he just kind of did it on purpose and was super dexterous and slipped away when no one was noticing and nobody saw him. And then he popped up over by Strider and everything is fine. And he and that is Obviously, the most boring possible explanation of this whole of this whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, keep going. We're on a roll. And what's more, this is the final slide in chapter nine. "'I am very sorry to have caused you any trouble,' said Frodo. "'It was quite unintentional, I assure you. "'A most unfortunate accident.' "'All right, Mr. Underhill, "'but if you're going to do any more tumbling or conjuring or whatever it was, "'you'd best warn folk beforehand and warn me. "'We're a bit suspicious round here of anything out of the way, "'uncanny, if you understand me, "'and we don't take to it all of a sudden.' "'I shan't be doing anything of the sort again, Mr. Butterbur, I promise you. "'And now I think I'll be getting to bed. "'We shall be making an early start. "'Will you see that our ponies are ready by eight o'clock?' Eight (laughs) o'clock. "'That's a very early start. "'Very good. "'But before you go, I should like a word with you in private, Mr. Underhill. "'Something has just come back to my mind that I ought to tell you. "'I hope that you'll not take it amiss. "'When I've seen to a thing or two, I'll come along to your room, if you're willing.' Certainly, said Frodo, but his heart sank. He wondered how many private talks he would have before he got to bed, and what they would reveal. Were these people all in league against him? He began to suspect even old Butterbur's fat face of concealing dark designs. Okay. Um, We're suspicious of anything uncanny around here. They don't take to magic. Right, magic tricks not the best, not the number one form of entertainment in Brie. Right, um, warn folk beforehand if you're going to do it. Warn me if you're going to do it so that I'm prepared. Right, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but again, I think that we can see here that he's uh, he thinks that he was tumbling, conjuring, acrobatics. Right. The, Butterbur's interpretation of the situation seems fairly clear, um, and that he seems to interpret it as fun, right? Like, Frodo thought he was going to—like, Butterbur seems to think that Frodo thought he was going to make a good impression, and Butterbur is here advising him socially, right? Let me explain to you about Bree, right? We're not really into magic tricks here. We don't take to uncanny stuff. Right, so that's really not the move in the common room, right? Stick to singing, Frodo. Um, yeah, uh, and Frodo says no, he has no plans on a repeat performance, right? I like Frodo's attempt here to try to return everything to normal, right? Butterbird gets it, sort of, right he hasn't even had to explain himself to Butterbur. Butterbur has provided him his own explanation of what happened. Um, And it's, Butterbur seems to be the only one in the inn who who bought his uh, rather thin story, right? Um, So he seems to be just kind of wanting to roll with that, right? Uh, uh, We'll be making an early start. Please have our ponies ready by 8 o'clock when he, butterbur says something has just come back to my mind that I ought to tell you i hope that you'll not take it amiss frodo is suspicious we're all these people in league against him right the idea of frodo and butter or that of strider and butterbur being in league right um is an interesting one Right? And the only thing that would seem to suggest it is the fact that they've both they both want a, a private appointment with him,? Right? Both of them have asked for a private audience. Are they working together? Is there something that they're trying to set up uh, with uh, both of them with me, right? Um, the fact that he's is suspecting everyone is in league, that they're in league against him, and that even old Butterbur's fat face might conceal dark designs. I think that that means it goes without saying that Strider's face may conceal dark designs. Right? The darkness of the designs of Strider seem downright probable. Right? With Butterbur, it's a little harder to believe. He does not look like, you know, a servant of the enemy right? Uh, Gandalf warned them that the enemy has many spies and many ways of knowing. little hard to believe that Butterbur is one of them, right? Um, but Strider, that's just what he'd expect him to look like, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um... But he's suspicious. I hope that you'll not take it amiss, Butterbur says. Something has come back to my mind. I hope that you'll not take it amiss. Um, we know what Butterbur's thinking, right? When he says, I hope you'll not take it amiss, he's saying, I hope you're not going to be angry at me when I tell you, right? When I make my confession to you. Um, but Frodo doesn't know that. So here I'm I'm again trying to play the game, knowing only what Frodo knows. What does it sound to him, like Butterbur is saying? What is he suspicious of? Exactly. Um, here Butterbur has championed him. Butterbur has been the only one not to ask questions, right? Or to not only accept, but even himself to suggest the explanation that Frodo himself ultimately gave of the mishap, right? Um... And then, having so it seems like Butterbur's on his side. It seems like he everything's fine. And then he says, I want to see you in private. Um, I ought to tell you something. I hope you'll not take it amiss. I'll come along to your room when I've seen to a thing or two. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what that must sound like to Frodo. And I can't think of a good explanation for it. Um. Something has come back to my mind that I ought to tell you. Could it be that the you know the Black Riders have gotten to Butterbur, right? That those are the dark designs, right? And that uh, yeah, it could be that, right? He's just, he's, he's, he's kind of slow on the uptake, right? Barlaman, not that bright, Frodo could be thinking. So he's only just now figured out, these must be the hobbits that the Black Riders are looking for. So, exactly among Once I've tipped off the bad guys, I'll come right in to talk to you, right? Yeah, I just have to take care of one or two things. There's, I gotta send a message, you know, to, like, the Nazgul, uh, and then I'll be right in to talk to you, right? Um... And Rothgar, you're right that he's giving him a lot of warning if he has bad intentions towards him. But of course, if he has bad intentions, he has already shown that he's not very bright, right? Because uh, he noticed at first, what, hobbits? Four hobbits? And out of the Shire by your talk? Right, that was Butterbur in their very first exchange. You'd think if he had been put on guard against f- a party of four hobbits coming out of the Shire that it might have clicked a little bit sooner. So if Frodo is now suspicious that even the fat face of Butterbur... Um, is concealing dark designs. It would have to be compatible with a fair amount of denseness on Butterbur's part. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it is it's possible, Veronica. Veronica says maybe Frodo thinks he has a warning about Strider. Um, he did say, without explaining earlier on, funny you should mention him, right? um, is that perhaps the thing that's come back into his mind, that he wanted to warn him about Strider? After all, Frodo was using Strider as an alibi just a minute ago, right? So maybe the thing that he wants to say is like, so, I, you know, okay, um, you know, yeah, maybe. Maybe he wants to explain more about uh, that last comment that he didn't, um, uh, that he didn't explain. Um... And yeah, yeah, C. Schwab is saying I think it's the association with Strider that's making Frodo suspicious. Um, Strider, a suspicious character, demands a private talk, then Butterbur does the same right after. Um, And Strider, what's more, made it sound like he had a business proposition for him, right? You may hear something to your advantage, right? So, maybe Butterbur is kind of doing the same thing, right? Yeah. 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 Good thinking. Okay. And with that... We are done with chapter 9. We will start chapter 10 next week. Um it is uh, and we are we are off to our field trip tonight. Everybody woohoo. Okay. Excellent. Let's see. So, um Valoria wasn't able uh, often uh been helping with our field trips lately. She's not she couldn't make it here tonight. Uh so I'm gonna do our field trip solo here tonight. Um we are again going to travel long distances. Actually they're increasingly long distances as we're moving further and further around the greater uh Brie region. Um but um so we're going to head out to Coombe, and from Coombe we're going to go up into the Chetwood. I want to explore the Chetwood. Having thought about shady people who live off in the wilderness near Bree, I want to be exploring what we do in-game with shady people living off in the wilderness near Bree, uh, because I've always thought this was really interesting and cool uh, how, they, uh, how they did this. So let us head off! Off we go out to Coombe. I think I'm just gonna get on a horse, and actually, I could probably swift travel there, couldn't I? I think I could, but I think I won't. I think I'll just horse up. All right. So thanks everybody who was joining us just for the book discussion. We will do. We'll be back next t- next week for book or chapter ten, not book ten. Okay. All right. Let us horse up and head out to call. Wait for people in the center of Coombe there. Oops, sorry. Running over people. Oh, excuse me. Really crowded stairway. Okay. Whew. All right. Oh, I got some Bree Town lag here. Okay. Right, here's the Coom Gate. Up the hill. I love the laundry. And can I say, whoever wears this shirt right here... I, does this suggest that, like, people in Brier are into the bare midriff look? That shirt just looks really short. I mean, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. You know... Just making a fashion observation. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> hey, Mongo, I said I wasn't judging. I just—it's—it's surpri- it's surprising because you know the 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 neck and sleeves make it look like a long sleeve tunic but it just stops. You just don't see that that often, that's all. Um, (laughs) Okay, here we are. Center of Kulma, stop over here by the... by the... uh, the... what's his... Stable Master. All right, here we got some other people joining us here. It could have shrunk in the wash, uh, but since they hung it up to dry, probably not, right? They obviously didn't put it through the tumble dry. So, uh, yeah. All right. It could be a Hobbit shirt, I suppose, Mike, but if it's a Hobbit shirt, then it's a Hobbit with freakishly long arms, which is actually the very first thing I thought when I saw it. But then I looked at it more closely, and I'm like, no, the arms look proportioned properly. It's, uh, it's the length that looks weird. All right. All right, we ready? Let's head off to the Chetwood. Do we have any, any low-level folks here tonight? I don't know how many people we've got. Oh, levels 36, 21, 32. Oh, nice fireworks. So oh, that's a townsperson. 17. Ah, we're Okay still for where we're going, we're still... We don't have anybody who's like level 6 was my biggest concern, so... Okay. I think in the Chetwood we'll still be be fine. Okay. (laughs) For an orangutan. Very small orangutan. Yeah, possibly. Alright, let's head off up to the Chetwood. So we have explored uh, Coombe here before. Now we're going to head off to the Chetwood. We made it as far as the top of this hill before, and we were talking to this guard up here. All right. Okay. So now we're going to continue on towards the Chetwood. Now, um, the Chetwood is right next to the towns. So, like, we know that this is, a uh, this is a local feature of the geography, right? I mean, like, Archit is named after the Chatwood. Um, I mean, it shares a name with it. So it's not like, you know, this is not the remote forest. And yet, in a place as sort of insular, as Bree would appear to be, um, even that seems to be kind of a big deal, right? Even the, um, even the neighboring forest is potentially a little bit mysterious or dubious and I kind of like the fact that the Chetwood itself is sort of a scary place full of wolves and it's got spiders which, you know, the hey, congratulations to this person. Hey, Wookiee leveled up to level ten. Great job. Uh you give that spider what for? You got it, man. It's all you. Anyway, so um you know, in spiders, I've always, you know, had kind of a love-hate relationship with the spiders uh, in Lotro. Um, on the one hand, of course, is kind of, when you look at the big picture, it's sort of an absurd proliferation of, of giant spiders. Um, but at the same time, I'm, you know, sympathetic with the sort of uh, plight of the Lotro people, wanting to have a diversity of creatures to fight, and so at least sticking with Tolkien-canon monsters even if they have to find really obscure reasons to bring giant spiders in places where there just are no giant spiders in Middle-Earth. Anyway, um, notice this forest is an old-growth forest. We've got some absolutely enormous trees. Some of them are smaller like this one here, and we've even got saplings like this one over here. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a varied forest, but I mean, if you look at some of these trees, these trees are enormous. Right? So we've got some real old growth. We've got the sense of this uh so this 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 deep mysterious fort. Bree's been here forever, right? The Brioanders have lived they claim to have lived here under this particular hill for thousands of years, and this forest looks like it's been here for thousands of years as well, right? Now now JJ's comparing it to the old forest. Yeah. Um yeah, we don't we're not told anything about it that would make it clear. That the Breelanders view are sort of as afraid of the Chetwood as the people in Hobbit in in the Shire are afraid of the Old Forest, um, such that they think that living right up against the Old Forest, uh, as the Gaffer says, is um, you know like enough to make the Bucklanders queer by associate. Like they're going to like absorb the queerness by ob- osmosis across the border, or it's going to drive them out of their minds, or whatever influence them in some kind of horrible way. There's no sense that like the people in Chetwood are, are queer, right because they live right up again the Chetwood. So we don't have um, we don't have any of those kinds of associations to work with. and yet, you know one thing that every, Almost every fairy tale, right? Almost every story in, Gr- in the Brothers Grimm, for instance, is about, like, the strange and unaccountable things that happen in the forest right next to the little hamlet that you live in, right? That's how these things work. Um, forests are dark and dangerous and mysterious, right? Even if they are right next to where you live. So I like the fact that this forest is obviously ancient, but it's also obviously dubious. I mean, here we just passed right by what we might have expected to see, which is a bunch of brigands. Hi, bunch of brigands. Here they are, the black wolves. their pack of ruffians, right? So a couple things that we think here as we see the, 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 the... So we saw wolves and spiders at the entrance, and then as we go deeper in, we see our worst fears are confirmed, and deep inside the forest are uh, a group of shady ruffians who are beginning to gather and organize. We have their captain, who's this guy who just wandered over here. Right. He's one of their captains. Isn't this guy? Hello. Is it? No, it's a, a Sergeant, right? But they have ranks. There was a captain. We were just walking behind this guy's a Sergeant over here. Uh, who's, uh, who's just a Raider. This guy is also something. Oh, uh, he's a Bowman, right? They had different jobs. Um, Anyway, so here are these ruffians that are gathering and they're organizing. And on the one hand, I love how they are kind of taking us to, we're doing some really interesting extrapolation of um, what we know is going to come in the story, right? Um, we know that Brie is going to be the focus of concerted attacks by brigands. It's, it's in fact, they're going to assault the town and try to take it over eventually. Right. Um, There was a real there there will be a real set to right there in Bree. Right. Um, uh, It's not happening yet. But of course, since we know it's going to happen, it's going to happen within this next year. um, I like how in the Lotro world, we're already imagining that um, they're getting ready. Right. They're already gathering deep inside the forest here. We have uh the, the the people who are gonna gather and come right up to Brie and try to get in and, and are gonna are gonna attack the city, um, they're already they're already gathering. But of course, then we have one further step of extrapolation and this is the kind of thing that um you see a lot in Lotro and it's a really fun kind of game to play. Once you begin, it's sort of a game that really sort of plays itself. Oh well, hang on a second, is this the big warg? Yeah, it is. This is that big war that, that almost killed Grifflet when Grifflet came through here, as I recall. We're all good, right? No one's going to get killed by him? He seems to be ignoring us all. Anyway, you guys can off him if you want, but that's the biggest guy to be concerned about through here if he's going to attack anybody. But looks like we're good. Okay. Anyway, this game that they play in Lotra all the time, which is the... Well, if it says this in the book, then this other thing must also be true, right? So, for instance, The Ruins... Right, we've seen the ruins a lot. We've talked a lot about the ruins, and it's perfectly logical, right? Given where Bree is and what we've been told about the the Arnorian civil wars and the the, the you know the kingdoms of Arthur I mean, Bree is practically at the the meeting point. We've talked about this. Um, there's gonna be there there would have to be a bunch of Arnorian, uh, you know, Arthedainian, Cartilingian uh, or uh, or Rudaran Uh, military structures, right, in this area. Ruins of them. There had have to be ruins. So the fact that the the countryside is just lousy with ruins, right, in Lotro makes perfect sense. Tolkien doesn't mention them, but logically, you would think that would have to be. So then you so now we play the game one step further, right? Given two things. A, that the place must have been full of old ruins, of old abandoned Arnorian fortresses that the the forest has uh, in the, you know, in the thousand years since uh, grown up around and, 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 and engulfed, but they're still there, right? And given the fact that we know the ruffians must already be uh, be multiplying and gathering uh, and organizing themselves and building their strength. What could make more sense than uh, having something like this, right? Their headquarters be inside one of these old Arnorian ruins deep inside the forest uh, that has been forgotten by everybody else. This is exactly the kind of site that one would have expected uh, uh, to find, right? And I, I love this ruin. I, you know, I, this is, uh, I love this like highly defensible. This is, this seems to have been some kind of bolt hole, right? For whichever group built it Arthodyne, I would think. Um, I don't see any Rudaran symbols. I love this sort of inner chamber here. Uh, you know, so with we've, we've got, Cliffs, well, sort of cliffs, bluffs, anyway, behind them, and these two bridges, right, with this sort of chasm. This, oh, it's an actual moat. There's actual water down there, right? Um, you know, so that they could have defended this position. And then up here, we have inside this innermost chamber, with inside the innerm- is uh, just a campsite, right, with a with Sergeant Applewood, right, one of the one of the leaders. Of the local Blackwoods, right? So we see it. I love the way that this both sort of recalls the usage of this place. Like this clearly was a defensive bolt hole, right? And he's using it appropriately as a defensive position. But of course, we can also see how pitiful these brigands are compared to the Arnorian kingdom in whose Old fortresses. They are squatting, right? As we see this uh, this huge old construction, and then just like their nasty bedrolls sitting around the campfire in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the stone floor. Um, so yeah, these guys are pretty pitiful compared to the old Arnorians, and yet you know they're taking uh, making appropriate use of this. So this this is just what we would expect to see, right? Uh, again, if we kind of think through all of those different hints and again play that well, if you know given what he's told us about this, this other thing must also be true, you know, if we sort of play that game um, uh then uh then yeah, so but that this is where of course, then their storytelling begins to get even more interesting, right So we come in here, we go deeper into the ruin. And now things start to get sketchy. So, okay, more ruffians, but what's this over here? Notice we've got a couple things. First, the torches, which, okay, you know, we've got fires, we've got torches, like you would, right? These are totally normal torches up here. Uh, these are not totally normal torches. Um, also, why is it snowing here? Presumably it's ash, right? Ash fall from whatever is spewing out of the mouth of this dodgy uh, chimney, right? Uh, but of course, I'm looking at the torches here first. So we have these uh, these iron torch sconces that are burning this strange-looking yellow flame. It's not like it's green flame, or, I don't know, like, purple flame, or something like that. Um, But it's definitely not normal fire like these torches, or that flame, right? Um, So something is definitely off, and the the chimney would be strange enough. The greenish glow, and the bubbles, and Bits of light coming, flying out of there, um, are even more dubious. And then we've got this. I don't even know what this stone is in the middle, right? With what looks like a crown or a hand or something. Is that an R4? It does look a little white handish, except it's a little yellow handish actually. And but there's some kind of weird. You know what this? What I call this place? uncanny. That's what I call this place, right? This place definitely looks uncanny. And then we come over here and what do we see over here? Look at this dude. It's an Angmarim dude. He's from Angmar. Right? Um, okay, so here's where we... So we can see now the sort of stories within stories, right? As as they're beginning to, to place... Uh And again, I love the way that sort of the logic of the Lotro for uh stories tends to unfold, right, as we have granted that the ruffians are going to be such a big problem within a year, they must have been gathering and beginning to be organized right um even the infiltration through Harry Goatleaf seems to suggest a kind of premeditation right so um so we should show them we should show them gathering, but then it's not you know. Why would ruffians be gathering at this particular time? Bree is under attack at this time. Why, why should Bree be under attack at this time, right? Um, because evil is stirring in the land, right? Because Saruman is coming up from the south. And, of course, Angmar coming down from the north. Now, Angmar, the, uh, the, the, the development of Angmar as a, as a rising threat or a resurrected threat uh, in the northern part of the world is totally unconnected uh, to... I mean, there's no justification for that uh, in the text. Angmar fell and never rose again so far as we can... There's no indication uh, that Angmar ever rose again. Um, so it's... That's a, a complete extrapolation uh, on their part. But... Um, it's... Uh, I think... Sort of, I don't know. I've never had a problem with it. I mean, I think it's totally justifiable. Um, what what it affects, you know, what it effectively shows, right, is this sort of the growth of the threat uh, uh, of you know, sort of the the rise of the enemy again, uh, and the North Kingdom is under is under threat, right? Um, we see Saruman trying to build his uh, his base of power, um, but the fact that Sauron is putting a whole bunch of things in motion that are coming in from several different geographical angles, that we know is a thing that's part of Sauron's preparations for the War of the Ring. Um, So, um, it is not um, um, it is it is, you know, it is not absurd that he would be coming in from the north as well, and uh, yeah, fufu, your health totally does drop when you approach this thing, um, or that is your dread increases. What what's my dread rating now? Ah, my dread is plus one, right? Um, so this there is an evil presence around this thing, right? It doesn't just look uncanny, it feels uncanny too, and it doesn't just feel uncanny, it feels wrong, right? If you get dread uh, when you are near this, uh, there is something seriously amiss here. And that warg, of course, was another sort of indicator. This is not just a random collection of of brigands. Let's go ahead and uh, exit the camp. We can exit out here this way. Um this is not just there have always been brigands around brigands and rangers and all kinds of shady people. Um, it's not just that there have always been brigands around and that now the brigands are organizing and getting together because there's so many of them. Um, no, it's part of a, it's part of a bigger thing. Right. And, uh, that bigger thing is, is part of the whole movement that's going to be engulfing all of, you know, all of middle earth. Right. Um, the, 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 the thing in motion, the all, you know, all the things that Sauron is putting in motion. Okay, so let's continue our ride through the Chetwood. We'll head back out towards the... But there's... there's more. Oh, hang on, look at this. So we've seen more camps, more brigands. And then over here, we've just got, we've got this house. Now, this is interesting, because this house... I love the name Skunkwood, by the way. Um... This is just a Breeland house. What I'm trying to figure out is... This does not look like a new house. But it is a wooden house. Though on a nice foundation. This looks like it could be a... Oops. Great. Um, this looks like it could be a... Uh, uh, sort of a hunting lodge or something like that, Right? Um, nothing sinister about this. Not located in a ruin, um, but of course, what we find here is a breeding ground. We've got wolf den mothers, over here, so we've got wolf hounds which are being bred with wolves. Uh, this sort of and then trying to raise up this particularly uh, fierce species of wolf. Um, and of course, there was that warg who is, uh, around. So we have this, uh, the warg is at the very least a kind of reminder, right? It's not just that the brigands are gathering. It's not even just that they're engaging in long-term preparations, like trying to breed this especially fearsome pack of wolves, right? By interbreeding wolves and wolfhounds. Um, but there's something kind of resonant to this whole thing right this is like a this is kind of like a a Sauron-ish or even sort of Melkorian kind of R&D that's going on here right Um, this is how all the evil people end up going right um, the whole, like, flavor of Skunkwood's farm here uh, begins to taste familiar if you know the stories of the Silmarillion, right? If you know the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Skunkwood, not a major villain yet, right? Um, but, uh, but you know, uh, Rome wasn't built in the day, right? This is uh, exactly how people go wrong. And what you hear when you overhear the comments that the brigands are making is they're talking about going to... Um, they're talking about the Angmarim coming to help. They're talking about conquering, Bree. They want to rule it, right? And that in itself, I find, uh, I find kind of interesting. Okay, so we're riding out back towards. Uh, here's the Wolf Den, right where the wolves are gathering. There, so we're near the, uh, uh, the entrance, back to the logging camp where we came in. Yeah, um, Vipanella it does. Lead you to think about the process by which wargs were bred and and uh, and raised in the first place, right? I mean, it certainly makes me think that. Again, this is small potatoes, right? This is just the very beginning of that kind of tra- trajectory, but it's exactly it's exactly the same kind of thing. Um, well, where I want to end here. And this is going to be tricky because I believe it triggers an instance so it won't be able to all go in together. Um, But I don't think you have to have prereqs in order to do it. This door over here. Right? So here we have this. So we've seen them, you know, build their own kind of camp out there. You know, that that house, um, which is clearly... Consistent with Breland architecture, we've seen them holding up in old Arnorian military ruins, as you would if you were a brigand gang in the Chetwood, which is where you'd totally be. Um, and um, but then here we have this door built into the side of the cliff, and this looks newer to me, it looks like a mine. I guess it could just be an old mine that was taken over. Um, oh, I can't go in. Oh, well. I guess you have to you have to be in the uh, the epic quest line. Sorry, I tried this with one of my other alts earlier today, who I didn't think had this quest, but maybe, uh, apparently, I was wrong. Anyway, it's fine. Um, inside is a mine, in, uh, which is just uh, the... Uh, the Another sort of headquarters of the Blackwolds. Um, what I really like there is how you can see sort of the escalation. So if you go, if you do the uh, volume one of the epic quest line, you'll go, you'll go through into there, and um, um, what you'll see is skunk, Skunkwood. You'll get to meet sk- Captain Skunkwood in there, and when you meet Captain Skunkwood, what, what I primarily wanted to go in to see. Uh, and uh, one of you who is inside, actually, if you could post a screenshot of this, and I'll put it up, I'd really appreciate it, um, of Skunkwood flanked by, the, by the, the torches, right? So, okay, so uh, you come in and you find Captain Skunkwood, and he's standing up on this dais, and he's flanked by those, those iron uh, torch stands right? Just like we saw with that kind of uncanny yellow flame, except inside here, the flames are bright purple. So it's even more obviously uncanny. And there's this, uh, there's this clear sense of we, the brigands have allied ourselves to strange and uncanny and sorcerous powers, right? Which we clearly don't really understand. Um, uh, and then, of course, we meet Umdir, who is—I uh, really like the Umdir plot because, of course, it's such a wonderful exploration of what happens with Frodo. I think we'll go and we'll 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 talk more about Umdir when we get to to Frodo's wound and the effects of Frodo's wound later on. Um, but um, anyway, so. Um, uh, so yeah, like I said, if somebody can get get to uh, Captain Skunkwood with his purple torches and send me a screenshot here in uh, in Discord, uh, that would be uh, that that would be pretty awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. And of course, as several of you are pointing out, we also do get to meet one of my very favorite characters, which is the poor old woman named Sarah Oakhart. Uh, who is uh, in trouble and, and needs to be rescued. So, um, by the way, I didn't even totally... I'd forgotten that Sarah Oakhart was in this cave until I just went back in it again earlier today. Uh, I think that was the first time I'd gone through that uh, since I uh, first finished Volume 1 of the Epic Questline. Um, yeah, good old Speedy... Uh, yeah, yeah, good old Sarah Wingfoot Oakhart. Um. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. Cool. Um. Anyway. Uh. So. The way in which I so, the point I'm making is just I love that the way that they show the escalation, right? Even the, the, not just the way that they kind of play out the larger plot lines and sort of think through the storyline of what is actually going on in this region and telling some really interesting stories behind, you know, building off of what we see happening in the story. Remember, this is the kind of stuff that they assume Strider, you know, that they assume Strider is involved in, or even perhaps, you know, one of the ringleaders of, right? Um, But, uh, But when we see it, so it's not just extrapolating that in a really interesting way, but also the way that we can see them engaging in such a fascinating way with some of these major themes, right? I love the way that we see the sort of the corruption of evil. It's like we have these good, honest brigands, right? And that's bad enough, right? You know, they're brigands and they're highway robbers, and that's not a good look. But even the good, honest highway robbers are being uh, corrupted, Right, They're being twisted uh, to somebody else's ends. Hey, thank you for that, Pontine. Pontine got it. Here, let's see. Okay, let me see if I can just expand my Discord here. Okay, there it is. Pontine sent me the image. There we go. I'll just put that on Twitch here. Okay, boom, there he is. So there he is flanked by his dodgy wolfhounds, right? But now he's surrounded by these clearly uncanny purple torch, you know, pinkish purple torches and six banners clearly showing the iron crown of Angmar, right? Um, this is a guy who is, um, he was a scumbag, but he was his own scumbag, Right. And now he has been, you know, caught up in something which is much bigger and darker than he was, and he's either going to get just trampled by it, or he's going to get, you know, twisted into something far worse even than he was. Um. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's um. Uh, I I I. I I really like that progression thinking of what we can cuz this is the this is the cave where we you know begin to see what's really happening right where we where we start to get to the bottom of the uh the story of the black wolves here what's really happening with the black wolves uh in volume 1 of the epic um and so I love how that kind of uh how that kind of comes together so yeah pontine thanks for that screenshot that's perfect all right um good well I think this is It's uh, right here at Captain Skunkwood that I had wanted to leave it. Um, So I will... uh, uh, I will... I will leave it there, I think, tonight. Um, Okay, oh, we've got another one coming in? There we go. Okay. Okay, oh, hang on. It's not coming through... That one's not coming through. Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, great. Okay, yeah, here it is a little further away. Good, yeah, we can see a wider shot. You can see him there. Ooh, that's interesting that we actually get uh, Skunkwood squatting there in the middle of his wolves right, looking particularly feral and I love how the, the knaves and ruffians, the blackwood uh, the walled knaves and ruffians um, even they are kind of confused and uncertain about what's going on and, and some of the things that they say are really interesting and kind of revealing as they themselves are kind of creeped out and don't really understand what's happening um, yeah, cool cool it's a nice shot, and the and the really fancy ornate hanging, um, hanging cages that we get in here too. Anyway, okay, cool. Thank you guys uh, uh, for helping support me there in my failure to get inside the building. Um, very good. All right, it is late tonight I kept you guys late but we finished chapter 9 so it was totally worth it thank you guys for joining me both for tonight's class and for our field trip and next week uh, we will be back and we will start chapter 10 and it's gonna be awesome so thanks everybody for joining me and I'll see you guys next week bye now thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.